0: Jonah 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons, who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Amen. Well, we've come to chapter 4 in the book of Jonah. Remember that chapters 1 and 4 primarily take up the sins of Jonah, his rebellion against the Word of God. Chapters 2 and 3, his obedience. So, in chapter 4, we pick up on his disobedience. And remember, Jonah is a believer. He's a true prophet of God. But this illustrates for us the evil attitude that one might have towards God's compassion with others, on his compassion on others. That's what we have here in the book of Jonah, chapter 4. We also have God's confrontation of it, which confirms that it is indeed a very wicked thing to have this attitude that Jonah has. We also notice or we will also ask ourselves how could it be that Jonah could do such a thing? He was just delivered by God in the in the sea and then he went and saw this great city, large city, repent and he should have been thankful and grateful that God used him to convert so many people. Why does he behave this way? However, Jonah is just like you and me. Jonah is just like us. We could ask the same question about David, King David. How could David, a prophet of God, a man of God who was faithful for so many years, how could David sin? so grossly, so heinously in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Adultery, murder, deception. How could he do such a thing? And then be so blinded that he didn't realize that Nathan the prophet's parable was a parable against him. He was so blinded in that way. This is the nature of sin, and this passage should remind us to always be on guard let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We are just like he. That was in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. Now, verse 1 but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Jonah is angry. And it's actually often in the Old Testament when the word displeased is used or not pleased is used. When it's used, it is from a Hebrew verb, which means to be evil. And I think that it properly fits this context. Jonah thinks it's evil. It's, great, it's a great evil for God to forgive the Ninevites and not punish them. He thinks of it as evil. He is obviously contradicting God. So if he's not on the side of God, it has to be evil. It's not just a matter of mere displeasure, a, a mere preference. I really get upset or irritated by something petty. That's not really what's happening here. His displeasure is really evil displeasure and it's against God because God is the one who forgave them and God is the one who commissioned him to preach. And he becomes angry. When he sees the grace of God, he becomes angry. This is the anger of man which does not achieve the righteousness of God or accomplish the righteousness of God. James 1, 19 to 25. This is the anger of man that does not, or 1, 18 to 25 in James. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's the sinful anger he has here. Verse 2, And he prayed to the Lord and said, I repent. No. After becoming angry, he has the audacity to pray to God to justify himself. His prayer is not a prayer of repentance. It's not a humble prayer. It's a proud prayer. This is like the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18:9 to 15, or Luke 18, 9-15, where the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Remember that prayer? Here, Jonah prays likewise. And he says, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. He's saying, when he was in his own country, in the land of Israel, when he was there, He knew that his message was conditional. He knew that if he preached repentance and faith, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, if he preached that to Jews and Gentiles, Acts 20, 21, if he preached that, that if they repented, God would forgive them. He's telling us in his own words, that explains his actions in chapter one. His actions are explained right here. This is why he fled. Because if he could not prevent it completely, he could at least delay it. He says, in order to forestall this, to delay this, I didn't want to see it earlier. Now I see it. That's why he went. Then, What was it about God and his character that he understood to be applicable here? Verse two says, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. He knew correctly the character of God. God is this way, He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, and he relents concerning calamity or destruction that he threatens on wicked people. And he knew that this characteristic of God, this attribute of God was applicable when people repent. He knew that God's character like this was not unconditional that it was not eternal and it's not equally applied to every human being. He knew that. He knew it applies when people repent. This is actually a very famously repeated verse in scripture, this verse. Let's see its first occurrence in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You know, we memorize certain key passages of the Bible. John three sixteen, Psalm 23, the Lord's Prayer. This is another one that everyone must memorize because this one gives us, in a nutshell, the attributes of God. This passage tells us the attributes of God. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Exodus 34, and we'll read verses 6 to eight Exodus thirty four six to eight. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed in front of Moses, and proclaimed The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Think about this. God is explaining himself after the incident of the golden calf that Aaron made, which he denies he made. He threw it into the fire and out came this calf, he said. But Aaron made it with the help of the craftsmen. After that incident, now God is restoring his relationship to the people, and this is what he reveals to Moses as to who he is. God's speaking, right? In verse 6, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. God's present and God is proclaiming right here. The Lord, the Lord God. We know who we're talking about. The identification is clear. And what is he like? He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He keeps loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. If God says this about himself, can anyone say God is not this way? If God says this about himself, can anyone assert that the Old Testament God is an evil, wrathful, impatient, quick to anger God. No, they cannot say that because God's contradicting that right here. Not only that, but in Exodus, Numbers, in the Psalms, in Jonah, Nahum, Micah, this verse in one way or another is repeated, which means the latter prophets, they understood what God said. Even Moses understood what God said about himself. That means that Moses and the rest of the prophets, they are testimonies to the character of God, to the attributes of God. And if anybody says he's not that way, they're lying. They're lying. They like to portray God as evil and capricious and quick to anger in the Old Testament. But he's not that way. He's the very opposite. Further, this passage says that he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, and even visit or punish the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. That means that he also punishes. And this implies that he is righteous. He's just. Correct? He is not biased, but he will inflict punishment from generation to generation. This means he's both loving and righteous. But then this passage does not explicitly say how he, how he applies his love and how he applies his righteousness. This passage does not explicitly tell us right here, at least not in these verses we read. And if not, then how will we know how these are to be applied? How will God's Attribute of love be applied to those who repent. Eternal love to those who repent. And how is it that His justice will be applied in the second half of verse (coughs) 7? To those who refuse to repent. If they repent, then they experience His love. If they refuse repentance, then they experience His justice, His righteous judgment. Now, when you hear these words, these are the words that we just read. What should it cause us to do? It should cause us to do like verse 8. And then after that, Moses prays in verse 9. And then God answers him in the following verses. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He worshiped God for who he really is. Immediately, he made haste. Quickly, without hesitation, he worshipped God. We should do the same. In fact, Jonah should, do, should have done the same. Instead of complaining to God, he should have worshipped God, knowing the kind of God he is. Verse 3. Jonah 4, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah, instead of worshiping God, he calls on God to take away his life. He thinks death is better than life. Now, the death he means is not eternal death, but he means his physical death at least Will separate him from seeing the things in the world, the things of the world. But he's not talking about a mass murder. He's not talking about genocide. He's not talking about exploitation of women and children. He's not talking about the butchery of babies. What's he talking about? What is it that's so evil that he saw that he wants to die? He just saw repentant sinners. Receive God's mercy. And that's causing him to say, I wish I were dead. God, kill me. Take my life. That's evil. Very evil. And God confronts it. Verse 4. There's a series of questions. We'll, we'll see the question in verse 4, verse 9, and 11. God answers him with these questions. These are interrogative rebukes. These are rebukes. God's confronting him with these questions. Verse 4. Do you have good reason to be angry? Of course not. Of course not. And this first time, Jonah does not answer. Jonah does like the people do in 1 Kings 18.21. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. 1 Kings 18:21. Matthew 22:46. No one dared from that day on to ask him another question. People when they don't have an answer, they keep quiet. When they have no logical, no rational refutation, they keep quiet sometimes. Sometimes they rant and rave and keep foaming at the mouth. But in this case, to prevent from looking more foolish, he kept quiet, at least temporarily. Uh, We also notice in verse 3, verses 3 and as well in verse 8, when he says, death is better to me than life, and he's begging for God to kill him, This is one of the verses that reminds us that Jonah knew that he could not murder himself. He knew that suicide was evil. He knew that. And we would do better to downplay or even try to remove from the English vocabulary suicide. Suicide sounds bad enough to some people, but to others it doesn't sound bad. We have to call it murder self-murder murdering oneself and it's a gross evil according to John in 1 John 3:11 to 18 he says no murderer has eternal life abiding in him 1 John 3:11 to 18 specifically verse 15 no murderer has eternal life abiding in him there are several examples of those who committed self murder, and all of them are evil people. The famous example is Judas Iscariot, Matthew twenty seven, three to five. Now verse five. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Although we read in chapter 3, verse 10, that God saw, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Whether God told Jonah immediately or whether God told Jonah later, we don't know. Probably he told him earlier, but Jonah... Still sat east of the city to just to make sure to make sure that this indeed was the case that God forgave they truly repented, and that there was not going to be a calamity, but he was sitting east of it, hoping that there would be a calamity, hoping and praying that there would be a calamity, a judgment, immediate sudden judgment, according to the kind that Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. Sudden judgment. Um, He sits east of it. It doesn't tell us why he sat east of it. Perhaps if the inhabitants are going to flee or if the inhabitants have a change of mind, they might try to go west of it because west of it would be the natural direction Jonah would take to return home because Nineveh was north and east of Israel and he would have to go west and south to go back home. But it doesn't tell us, the text doesn't tell us why exactly he went east of it. Here, he then makes a shelter for himself, a shelter, a booth, probably from the trees and the leaves, the large leaves that were in the vicinity, he made a booth for himself. It is the same word booth that we find in the book of the law, such as in Leviticus 16 or Leviticus 23, Leviticus 23, and also in Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8 verse 15, there the people, the returnees from exile, they made booths and celebrated the, the feast of booths. Perhaps he made some kind of temporary shelter, like that. Certainly it's temporary because he would not want to live there for the rest of his life. He'd love to go back home. Still, though, we notice Jonah's obstinance. So very stubborn. Verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. This, of course, is unexpected. He made a booth. But, you know, if you have just a booth and you are in a desert land, very hot. And we know from verse 18 that there was a scorching east wind that came. That in this very hot region, the booth would not be sufficient. So God helped him out and he helped him out to increase his guilt. Notice this. Jonah was helped by God to increase Jonah's guilt, not merely to temporarily give him relief from his discomfort and make him extremely happy, which it did. But God will eventually confront this. When God provides for us, in the midst of our sin, we should not be so blinded by our sin that we miss the judgment of God. Blessings in the midst of sin are actually judgments against us. Verse six, uh, it also says, the Lord God, and then further in seven and eight, God Appointed, God appointed. This, in verse 6, the Lord God, whenever, whenever it says the Lord, it is Jehovah or Yahweh, which makes it clear we're talking about the true God. Not a vague, general, generic creator God, but the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament. We're talking about him. He is the great creator and redeemer who has control over plants or trees to make one grow big enough to be a shade over the shelter and for Jonah to be comforted and extremely happy. Well, Jonah is perverse in his affections. Jonah has more pleasure... In seeing this temporary plant, miraculous temporary plant help him rather than the eternal word of God help the souls of the Ninevites. He's extremely happy here, but he's greatly but it greatly displeased Jonah. It was greatly evil in Jonah's sight and he became angry in verse one. His affections are perverse. Where he should have sensitivity and tenderness, he doesn't. And where he shouldn't, he does. Verse 7. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. The Lord provides, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job one twenty one. And that's what's happening here, verse seven. This is an object lesson. It's an obvious object lesson, is it not? The next day, the plant sprouts and grows very quickly to benefit Jonah, and then very quickly it withers because of a worm that God appoints to destroy the plant. The next day. So he just had one day's pleasure One day's extreme happiness. Only one day, only one day. But what about the Ninevites? Whatever happened with them that God did miraculously, remember, we spoke about that last time, that God granted repentance, God granted faith, God changed their heart, and that's why they had faith and repentance. That result of God, that miraculous work of God, lasts forever. This work of God, in verses 6 and 7, lasted a day. Verse 8, And it came about, when the sun came up, that God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head, so that he became faint, and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. God increased His misery with the sun, the, the heat of the sun, likely in the hot season, and then a scorching east wind that God appoints. The scorching east wind, He's east of the city. This may also be a, uh, the irony of it, that from uh, the this scorching east wind, God attacks Jonah on the east side of the city. God attacks Jonah with a blistering wind and likely a lot of sand with it too in the desert. So the sun beats down on Jonah's head. He becomes faint and beg with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. The first time he fainted in this book, chapter two, verse seven, he says, chapter two, verse seven, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. When he fainted then, he prayed to God properly. When he's fainting now, chapter four, verse eight, He is praying to God improperly, sinfully, saying, death is better to me than life. Complete contradiction. Now, verse nine. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Now, God specifies, and he says, about the plant. Why are you angry about the plant? It's a plant. And he has the audacity to answer back to God. He says, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. That is very, very evil for him to say that. He justifies, the first time God asked him, he didn't answer. Now, he is so irritated, so angry, he does answer God back, justifies it by saying he has good reason, even to death. God answers him, verses 10 and 11. And we notice that God answered him and Jonah has no answer. Since this book is the book of Jonah, written by Jonah, and Jonah does not answer, I think there is an implied repentance. Not an explicit repentance, but implied repentance. So, God's answer, verse 10, Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, And which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Is that not true? Jonah has feelings for the plant. He has passion for the plant. Where's his passion for the people? And then he didn't work for this plant, he didn't cause it to grow. It lasted just a day, over, from overnight to overnight, right? Didn't he work traveling hundreds of miles to go to Nineveh? Didn't he work by preaching? Didn't he risk his life also? Who knows what the Ninevites would have done, right? What if the Ninevites didn't repent? They could have arrested him and assassinated him, right? Right? So he did all that. He worked for all that. He labored for all that and he's not happy. He didn't labor for the plant and he wants to die. Verse 11. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many Animals. What he's really doing, Jonah's doing, is challenging God. He is really confronting God. So God justifies himself to Jonah. God explains himself to Jonah. God has a right to do what he wants, and based on his nature, based on his attributes, to act accordingly, which should not be a surprise to Jonah. It was not because of Jonah 4 verse 2. Jonah was not surprised, right? So why won't Jonah believe it? He's not surprised, but he's refusing to believe it. Shouldn't God have compassion on Nineveh? Remember, Nineveh is a foreign city But God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. Correct? And God told Moses and all the prophets that God would save the Gentiles. Correct? And even in the century before Jonah, didn't Amos go to Israel, the northern kingdom that was wholly corrupt, completely corrupt. Amos was sent there in 800 BC. And now we have about 50 years later, Jonah is sent to Nineveh. And even in the 800s BC, Elijah went to Zarephath. Correct? And even in that century, about 100 years before Jonah, didn't Elisha help a foreigner, Naaman the Aramean, which incidents are in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5. Jonah would have known all this, right? And didn't Jonah know that Rahab the harlot repented? He knew that, Joshua chapter 2. Wouldn't Jonah know that Caleb was the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite Joshua 14:6 wouldn't he know that that he was a Kenizzite Caleb was not even of the stock of Israel Abraham Isaac and Jacob he was a Kenizzite he was a Canaanite his father was a Kenizzite according to Genesis 15:19 to 21 the Kenizzites were one of the Canaanites Genesis 15, 19 to 21, a Canaanite. Jonah would have known all this, but none of those truths, none of those facts of history caused him to have the right attitude. Why? Because his sin consumed him. Then God explains the great city. Here, great in population. The 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand are likely the children who are not old enough to understand the difference between right and left hand, which also means they don't know the difference between good and evil, in terms of being aware of it, being aware of it as adults are. And if the city has... 120,000 infants, then if we add their parents to this, then we are dealing with at least hundreds of thousands, if not millions, at least one million people in this great city, large city. Not only does this city have people like this, this many people, but many animals. Many people and many animals. Jonah is concerned about plants. God is concerned about people and animals. People and animals share blood with each other. Plants, generally speaking, they don't share blood with humans. Animals do, and they animals have the breath of life. People have the breath of life. Male and female, Jew or Gentile, have the breath of life. God has concern for them. What was Jonah's main problem? The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but it's likely the problem that we just mentioned a few minutes ago that God intended to save the Gentiles. But just like in the days of Christ and the apostles, we note that they hated hearing that the Gentiles should hear the gospel. In Acts chapter 22, 21 to 22, when Paul told the mob that Christ told him, go and I will send you to the Gentiles. The next verse in Acts twenty two twenty two says that there was a violent reaction to that. Christ is telling Paul, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, Acts twenty two twenty one 21. And then in verse 22, and they listened to him up to the statement and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for he should not be allowed to live. And then they are trying to uh, seize him and hurt him. But he's then protected by the soldier. So, This is not new for the people of the Jews to be against preaching to the Gentiles. They loved their favored nation status. They loved that. But they did not love God's grace to be spread abroad. Um, We also note that it's many animals, many animals we learn from Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10 what a righteous man is like. Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10. It says, A righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. Righteous men have compassion for the life of his beast, but not just one's own beast or one's own animals or domestic animals, but it's also in reference to animals generally. Didn't Christ say in Matthew six, Matthew six twenty six? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And didn't he say in Matthew ten twenty nine to 31, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows God cares for the sparrows he cares for the people Matthew 12:12 12, 12. Matthew 12:12 12, 12. of how much more value then is a man than a sheep so then it is lawful to do good on the sabbath in the previous verses he's explaining that the pharisees know that if their sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, they would certainly rescue their own sheep. Why not rescue a man on the Sabbath, therefore? They knew it was self-evident that the animals were also important to God and have their place before God. But Jonah did not. No people, no animals, only plants. We could say that Jonah in his moment of sin here is like today's environmentalists. They care more about plants than animals and people, especially people, and especially babies in the womb. They hate that, they hate them. One more point about verse 11, one more question that normally arises is verse 11 teaching that infants do not have guilt. No. Verse 11, Jonah 4:11 is not teaching that infants do not have guilt. It's teaching that infants do not have actual sin. But infants have original sin. They have the guilt of original sin. Jonah 4:11 is not teaching The age of accountability. Another verse in the Old Testament misquoted is is in Deuteronomy chapter one Deuteronomy one thirty nine. Deuteronomy one thirty nine. Moreover, your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. The little ones who have no knowledge of good or evil this day. What he means is your infants born to you recently, they were not a part of this big grumbling and disputing from Numbers 11 to 25. They weren't a part of that because they were not old enough to know what in the world was going on all around them. They didn't have this knowledge of good and evil. You had the word of God preached to you. You were told the promises of God. And you were commanded to go into Canaan, invade Canaan, and destroy the Canaanites to inherit Canaan. But you refused to do it. This is what he's recounting in Deuteronomy chapter 1. He's recounting the fact that they rebelled against God. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe in God. He's not talking about the infants being completely guiltless. He's saying they were not guilty of doing that. So you all are going to die who deserve to die in the wilderness. And then all of your little ones will grow up in the wilderness and they will become the ones who inherit the land of Canaan. That's the meaning of Deuteronomy one thirty nine, and that's also Jonah 4.11. Infants don't have actual sin until they are old enough to actually sin, but they do have original sin. How do we know that they have original sin? Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse. The first one is Psalm 51.4. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51 verse 4. The New Testament verse is Romans 5:12 to 21. Romans 5:12 to 21. And we'll read verses 12 to 14. Romans 5:12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense, who is a type of him who was to come." Death reigned over all those who did not sin, like Adam. Death reigned over all the infants, between Adam and Moses. Why? Because all sinned when Adam sinned, in verse 12. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.